Welcome to Between Lewis and Lovecraft. I'm Hannah. And I'm Tyler. We're here to learn more about the lives of authors that have inspired us, a journey into the stories they not only created, but also lived. So join us as we dive deep into the worlds that live just out of reach. Ah, that's some good coffee. Not, It's not weed. I'm not smoking weed. Oh, yeah. That just kind of sound like a bong. Have I done this bit before? I feel like I have, where me slurping on coffee sounds like a bong. Uh, No, but I know you slurp on a lot of I coffee. I slurp coffee hard because you got to aromate it. Aromatize. Aram, aromatize. Aerate it? Aerate it. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> you got to make that air happen to it so that it gets those flavor things going. Oh, and you should really write advertisements for coffee. <laughs> like you're doing great. Right, yeah. All right, here's my here's my coffee advertisement for for the coffee that I'm drinking right now. <clears throat> I'm gonna put music in this later and edit and post. <clears throat> Hi there. Do you like coffee? Well, Garage Coffee has some coffee. You should definitely uh, drink it uh, because it's got coffee in it. What's it made out of? Coffee, and it's got all the flavors of the coffee the one i've got right now hold on let's just let's get those flavors going oh he's aerating it <laughs> oh god so much coffee man you can't have too much coffee because it tastes like um uh hazelnuts and uh graham crackers and i don't think so. uh the peruvian countryside yes that that last one garage coffee <laughs> perfect malala oregon coffee <laughs> Uh, that was my advertisement. Uh, Garage Coffee, feel free to just write that check. Um, <laughs> right, send it on over. <laughs> we are drinking Garage Coffee. We are. That's not a joke. Uh, and and Tyler's came straight from them. I yeah. uh, we don't have a coffee maker in the studio, which was a huge <laughs> oversight. So I picked mine up at a uh, local bakery. They okay. So here's yeah. So here's the thing. It's a it's a local coffee maker in Malala. Uh, uh, roaster uh, i'm guessing you don't grow the coffee in malala no that's why it's from peru right i was gonna get there <laughs> um and uh this might sound like an advertisement and it 100 percent is because they gave us free coffee uh they were super cool um and we're excited to be sitting down drinking drinking some uh garage coffee in our studio and yeah you had to go well we both went to uh baker prairie bakery such a fun baker it's prairies so bakery baker's prairie bakery that's what it is there it is tongue twister um and they knew who i was when i walked in that was exciting whoa they yeah. did not know who i was and then so. they're like this is for you right and i was like uh yes and they gave me a pa- a bag and it had stickers and uh three bags of coffee in it and a pour over thing that was is super cool but i can't even boil water in my studio so it's like <laughs> All I'd be doing is running cold water over some grass. Oh, we should get one of those like electric teapot things. Oh, the water boiler that's things. a yes. great idea. Oh, we're definitely doing it because with the pour over thing, like it makes it so that we can, like, mm-hmm. we can just boil the water there, pour it over. Um, so that's that's definitely happening. Um, but yeah, thank you, Garage Coffee for, and it seriously is, it's Peruvian coffee, or this one is. There's also Guatemala. Yes. and it's super good, super good, it's and so it good. does have hints of graham cracker in it. I'm not. That's I wasn't, so fancy. I wasn't joking about that. <laughs> I don't. I just a... wasn't talking about it very well. 
<laughs> I don't have a distinguished palate like that, so I'm just like, yeah, it tastes like coffee. And but the fact is, we need to uh, we need to enjoy our coffee. Am I right, Hannah? We need to enjoy it while it's still here. Because it won't be here. Because soon <laughs> it won't be here because of the society making Big Brother taking away our coffee. Big Brother is going to take away your coffee because Big Brother does not want you to enjoy anything. Big Brother is going to take away the coffee like Hannah's going to take away the segment and and run with it. Why are we talking about Big Brother, folks? It's because he's always watching, literally, in the studio right now. Yeah. Uh, but also because this week we're talking about George Orwell. Yeah. Who is... I'm like, I love him. I hate him. He's my spirit animal, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Except not in any way, because I think he was born like 100 years old, <laughs> even though he didn't live to be 100. <laughs> I was born to be 100. No, one of his friends like literally described meeting him the first time and said he looked very mothy. <laughs> yeah, moth-eaten is yeah, what moth-eaten. it was, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, oh, that is so rude. Like, that is not the... Uh, but the- I think... I think bookworms everywhere would take that as a compliment, though. I mean, I wouldn't. Really? <laughs> I don't want to be, like, 30 years old and being described as looking moth-eaten, but he totally did. Yeah. Yeah, he definitely did. Yeah. Uh, he was, yeah. How did he get so many curls? That's my question. <laughs> well, uh, I don't. you're going to have to tell me about that because, full disclosure, the biography I read about him sucked. 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 It was uh, more of an analysis of the history at the time that Mm. he was writing and like uh it analyzed all his different works which is very cool if that's what you're into sure i wanted to know about his life yeah we want to get into the nitty-gritty we're the most perverted book uh (laughs) podcast that exists how are we not going to talk about his sex life yeah it nothing about his sex life so i was very disappointed also it was kind of like a pretentiously written biography which one was it uh it's it had a very like misleadingly exciting name too. Uh-huh, uh-huh. It's called George Orwell or English Rebel by okay. Robert Collis. Robert Collis, huh? See, or that's Cole. interesting because I I started uh, the book Becoming George Orwell. Um, that's what I started. And full disclosure, uh, I made it not even halfway through that book before I was like, you know what? I don't want to hear any more of this. I want to read 1984. <laughs> so, good choice. But was it a good biography up until halfway through? <clears throat> Here's the thing. No. Um, <laughs> I'm choking on my coffee. <laughs> Her delicious garage <laughs> coffee from Malala, Oregon. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, it could be. It was also fairly pretentious. He started out by talking about the uh, the Trump elections and how uh, how much they were reminiscent of some of the stuff. In okay, I'm already turned off by right? this. Right, and I I'm hate like any book that tries to like compare current, current events, events that are like too close to accurately analyze to fascism from right. the 1940s. And and so there's, I was like, okay, so there's obviously an agenda here. You're not you're not doing a biography on George Orwell. You're doing and then he kept doing this thing where he's like, you know, there is a difference between uh Eric what's his name? Blair. What's, Blair, yeah. There's a difference between Eric Blair and then his pen name George Orwell and then the in quotes 
George Orwell. What the fuck? And he kept doing that, like being like, and in quote, George Orwell was blah, 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 while regular George Orwell. And I'm like, dude, stop saying the word George Orwell. You're saying it too much. And he would do that like three or four times in one sentence. And like 10 times I counted in one paragraph. I just, I got tired of that. He, he touched on his life. He did a quick overview basically in one chapter of his life. And then he just kind of editorialized his stuff from that point on. And apparently the guy that wrote this is some, you know, like big Orwellian like scholar. He's, he is, he's, he's like, yeah, George Orwell is like my philosophical big brother. Like I look up to him and I, I resonate with him. I'm like, okay, so you're standing on the shoulders of giants. I get that (laughs) uh, to, to make a quick buck for yourself. (laughs) Man, I'm really attacking this guy. (laughs) But like I, I just I got tired of it, and I was like, rather than doing, rather than um, than listening to this, I just want to listen to 1984. And I got about halfway through. I got right to where it makes the turn from like hope, <laughs> and now and it got right into the deep dark the crushing stuff. Despair. And I and I couldn't take it anymore, to be honest, because I'm at work where my soul is being crushed already. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, I just need to listen to some uh, some emo, like some My Chemical <laughs> Romance and like scream sing my feelings out here. <laughs> That's beautiful. So Okay, so neither of us liked our biographies. If anybody yeah. knows of a good George Orwell biography, yeah. please email us. Here's where I'm going to stand with you guys. Last episode, the What the Hell episode. I spoke for 85% of that episode, and Hannah got a couple of tidbits in there. We're doing the opposite today. Hannah's going to give us her spiel. I'm sitting on the couch, legit, with my coffee, and I'm mostly going to listen. He, and he's so lying, but... I'm not lying. We'll get through this so I much will faster. Not, <laughs> I will not speak until you point at me and give me the absolute uh, allowance. Okay. Now. Now. Okay, so... Why did we mention Eric Blair earlier? Who is this person? It's George Orwell. Spoiler alert. So that's his uh, his birth name. He was born June 25th, 1903 in Bengal, uh, which is in eastern India. His dad was a British colonial civil servant uh, who was working over there. And his mom was the daughter of an unsuccessful, the biographer pointed out, teak salesman in Burma. Uh, but she was of French descent. So Europeans living in India being colonizers. He had one older sister named Marjorie and a younger sister named Avril, who my biographer didn't even feel the need to mention because he, <laughs> I thought he was an only child the whole book until Jeez. like later on. I was like, oh, he has sisters. Okay. Uh, so his family was kind of interesting. They were like, his dad came from a family with a lot of money, but it had mostly run out by the time his dad was alive. So they were lower middle class, but Orwell slash Eric Blair at the time described them as lower upper upper middle class, meaning upper middle class without money. And he also described them as the landless gentry, meaning they were basically poor, but super snobby and Mm. acted like they were rich. Lovecraft. (laughs) Do you have any other thoughts on that, Tyler? Pointing? Oh, (laughs) thank you. Um, No, Uh, (laughs) not really. Like I I just shouted, Lovecraft. It just reminds me of Lovecraft and how they were snobby, but they had zero monies. But they were like, well, we're still genteel. (laughs) Where's Grandpa (laughs) Wibble? 
Perfect. <laughs> I had to Sit bring back it back. Down. Yep, there we go. So kind of adding to the dual life that he was living, he, he grew up highly educated. He went to a very good uh, boarding school when he was really young, because apparently you just ship your eight-year-olds off to boarding school in England. Lewis and love Lewis. See you, Lewis. <laughs> Um, so he went on a partial scholarship and then also like his uncle on his mom's side helped pay the rest of the fees and like the headmaster was really nice and like gave him a cheaper ride or something. And so he That sounded gross. Gross. That sounded really gross. I didn't point at you. <laughs> I know, but it still sounds gross. <laughs> so he's going to school with all these rich kids and he's not rich. But he's getting a great education. And uh the biographer I was reading uh, pointed out that he was like very naturally smart and he actually like worked decently hard at school at least in his early school career um and he wasn't very popular with his peers shocking because you know <laughs> literary geniuses are usually beloved in childhood oh yeah man they, they're they always the most popular kid in school um so he kept working hard in school and he got scholarships to wellington college colleges are like high schools in england for all you americans uh, and then also <laughs> Eton College, which I think is a pretty prestigious <clears throat> one, uh, to continue his studies. And then once he got to Eton, uh, he kind of like got lazy and stopped doing his schoolwork and just started reading for fun all the time. Except reading for fun when you're uh, Eric Arthur Blair is like reading very smart authors like George Bernard Shaw and H.G. Wells and Samuel Butler. So he was he was getting a lot of good reading in, a lot of good learning. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> yeah. But then... He graduates high school. And, and it all changed. It all just goes to shit now. <laughs> so college wasn't like as much of a thing back then, but like people were still doing. Yeah, like, there's, yeah there were still universities. There were still universities. It wasn't like a you have to go to college situation. This is, I mean, this is literally the same time frame as uh, C.S. Lewis. Right? Yeah. So C.S. Lewis just like threw himself into, into college, into education. Yeah. He was like at universities for 90% <clears throat> of his life. Yeah teaching or learning right uh eric blair george orwell did not did not make that decision he decided to go to burma instead totally normal decision oh yeah man <laughs> um so in 1922 he went to serve in the indian imperial police which was very surprising to me somehow i did not picture george orwell as being a cop or specifically a cop for an imperialist agenda yes uh <laughs> So I don't. Did you see too much about like why he decided to do this? Mine kind of glossed over. I mean, I know his his dad was involved in like that line of work, I think but it's not like he I was close exactly to his it. dad. Yeah, but there's still a tendency to want to make your dad proud of you. Yeah, it's a, it's a normal thing for every guy to have to deal with. So yes, I think it had everything to do with the fact that his dad was in that line of work and he went back to India, where his family, where he grew up, Burma, Myanmar. Oh, okay. Yeah. But Asia. <laughs> yeah, yeah uh, that that Western Asian Yes, territory. the colonies. Uh, so I think that's it. Um, so when he was there, he was still an outsider. He, he didn't really hang out with the other imperial police. Uh, he spent most of his time reading or um, kind of like immersing himself in the local culture. He'd go to like the local church. Uh, he learned to speak the language really well, yep. and he even got these small blue circles tattooed on the back of each <clears throat> knuckle um, that, among the Burmese, are believed to protect against bullets and snake bites. So he was, like, I mean, all did, into it. Did he ever get shot? 
Uh, no, the, the the tattoos do not work very well, so we'll get to that. <laughs> oh, <okay. laughs> yes. I don't know about the snake bites, though. Maybe they protected against that. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, you only got the snake bite ones. You have to pay yeah, more. Yeah, yeah. You have to pay a premium cost for the bullet ones. Nobody told him that when yeah. he was in Burma. <laughs> it's like when we signed up for our our website hosting, and I'm I'm trying to get our <laughs> shop set up, and it's like, oh, you paid you paid for the cheap one. If you want a shop, you have to pay more for that money. <laughs> You're gonna need like bigger blue circles <laughs> tattooed on your hands. <laughs> um, so while he was there, he became increasingly ashamed of his role as a colonizer. Yeah, he was doing a lot of lot of thinking about that. Um, and I mean, that probably comes from actually hanging out with the Burmese people instead of just chilling with your other cop friends. Yes. You're not in an echo chamber. You're in a reality that exists outside of your own false reality. Yes. And I think this is like some of the early signs of what's going to distinguish Orwell as a, a human and a writer is that he really sympathizes and identifies with the more oppressed people yep. and the lower class people. So even here, he's hanging out with the locals. Uh, so he, he starts being uncomfortable with what he's doing there. And then in mm-hmm. 1927, so about five years into his, his stay in the Im- Imperial Police, he's on leave uh, back in England because he got really sick with dengue fever. Mm-hmm. Um, and so while he's there, he's just like, well, I'm not going to go back to Burma. And so he formally did. He re- say it just like that. Probably he probably said it in a very British himself? accent. Or is it? Or is it to like family? And he's like, well, family, I'm not going back to Burma. I think that's Australian. Not, uh, no, that was that was 100 percent English. That's your British accent. Yeah. <laughs> he, I I don't know what his voice sounds. like. Are there recordings of George Orwell's voice? I'm gonna look this up while you talk. I need to find out what he sounded like when he said, "Yeah, hell no, not going back." Uh, so he formally resigned on January 1st, 1928, and he did that fully intending to become a writer. He was like, fuck this colonial shit. I'm a write. <laughs> also a direct quote. Um, but the experiences in Burma and his thoughts on imperial rule would go on to influence a lot of his writing, particularly one of his novels, Burmese Days, and shorter works like Shooting an Elephant and A Hanging. Shooting an Elephant, I feel like everyone reads in school now, so that's probably a better known one. (laughs) Tyler didn't read in school, so Tyler's like, what? I read some stuff. I know words. (laughs) Hold on. Do we have a George Orwell voice? Perhaps we should start with you telling us a little about yourself. English cookery, English beer, French red wine, Spanish white wine, Indian tea. I mean, he sounds exactly like Spanish I would think he would sound like. He's a little gruffer sounding than I well, expected. Well, he's, he's older. This is one of his last interviews. Older being, being spoiler <laughs> alert, 47. I, I dislike big towns, noise, the motor car, the radio. Food and central heating. Interesting. And mo- so he's Amish. <laughs> <laughs> wow, I didn't know that. And central heating—that was a little much, but I, I'm getting there. I'll oh, have yeah. a George Orwell down by the end of the episode. Perfect. That'll be a great time. Um, so yeah, so he's back in England, um, 
And he really threw himself into his writing. Within a year, he published a short piece in a French journal, um, but he mostly had to work a lot of odd jobs, like service jobs, to make ends meet. Yep. And he was kind of bouncing around from like location to location at this time, too. Um, so forgive me if I don't have all of the, the places he lived. You correct. need to make sure you list every, every single, single move address. It's so hard because all these writer types are just always bouncing around from friend's house to living in some tiny apartment. That's to... because being a writer, <laughs> you have no stability. You have no stability. None. You guys need to be more stable, please. Go get a job, you, you hippies. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, in 1928, he moved to Paris where his aunt also lived and she kind of helped support him financially and socially. Uh, she also, ha- her husband, uh, was pretty influential on, uh, his political thinking later on. Um, and while he was in Paris, he really started working hard at writing novels, but at the time he was more successful as a journalist and he published uh, a bunch of articles in several, uh, news publications. Um, and then about a year later, he went back to England and his main job then was writing reviews. He also tutored some kids and then uh, a couple of years later became a teacher at a high school for boys in West London, which he didn't like teaching, very much, <laughs> which doesn't surprise me, I guess. But it's like teaching is such a good writer's job. I feel like he should have stuck with that more. Yeah. Learn lessons from Stephen King. Yes. Well, I mean, it's good in terms of like imparting your wisdom or whatever, but also it's good in terms of like having time to write and financial stability. But Orwell isn't about that life. Nah, bruh. And I I think the main reason he didn't like teaching was because he was at like the kind of school that he had attended and like around all these privileged kids. Oh, so he's just being... uh, He's just being a little douchebag. Yeah. Like, (laughs) you think you're so important. Yeah. <laughs> that was closer. That was closer to his voice. Yeah, you're Central heating. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, what you got against central heating? I don't like movies or books or shoes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know if this is the right time for it, but George Orwell seems like he was kind of like a self loathing person at times. He was he, he yeah. like he didn't like the intelligentsia or like intellectuals even though he was one yeah he didn't like anyone who wasn't <clears throat> poor basically and he wasn't really poor i mean he was himself but like he came from a family that had decent resources sure so yeah i feel like he must have been kind of a sad dude yeah i've got a i've got my summary for him but we'll wait okay oh <laughs> wait interject your summary when it's appropriate you can't just wait till the end. He was a he was a hipster. He he was a hip. Oh, I saw that somewhere. George Orwell, the original <laughs> hipster. Yeah, I did, I saw that too. But and I was pissed because I was like, damn it, they took it. They took <laughs> the thing I was gonna say. But he he didn't like new things because they were new and like he didn't he didn't like them. Right, like everybody's into this central heating thing. Um, and then and then he hates people who are intellectuals, but he himself is an intellectual and he has to be right about all this stuff that he that he thinks um and so like it's just this hipster mentality of like well unless i thought of it it's not really that good of an idea (laughs) and uh i don't know and just i he was less annoying i think because he wasn't as much of a poser because we're about to get into his time in the war 
dude did some shit. Dude right? did some shit. <laughs> and so he, uh, I don't know. He just, I, he's kind of a contradictory kind of guy. Yes. So before we get to the war, we're going to go through it briefly. His first few books. I don't want to talk too much about most of them, but his, <laughs> I don't <laughs> any want to talk about them. No, we're going to talk mean, about them. He actually wrote a lot of stuff. I wasn't yeah. expecting him to have so many works given that his life was pretty short, but he wrote fast. So yeah. his first book, Down and Out in Paris and London, was published in 1933. Um, that one focused on the lives of the working poor and transients. Um, and one of the things that the biographer I was reading noted that was actually insightful, unlike the rest of it, was that uh, he really like put himself in in the shoes of the people he was writing about. Yeah. So like he w- he didn't just want to write about them from the outside. He wanted to know what they were going through. So you know he would put himself in the workhouses, in in the colonial prisons, in uh, in jail uh, among immigrant communities, and even like in the hospitals where they would go. Yeah. So he was like he was kind of semi more of a journalist than than a writer he like wanted to research his subjects sure um so for the this was the first time he used the pseudonym george orwell um which as far as i could tell it comes from the name of a river um yeah so george is two of his favorite people um george I can't, bernard shaw and yeah I'm, and then there's somebody else i couldn't remember and then orwell yeah there's a uh 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 parisian I think it's Parisian. I think it was in Eastern England. Oh, was it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and it's a it's a river. Um. So yeah, he didn't like his name. Eric's- well, I I think I mean having a pen name is pretty, pretty normal. Yeah. Um. Most people just do the two first letters and then a, a last name. Yeah. That's I also saw name. that like uh, I and I'm not sure if this was a main motivating factor, but that he didn't want to embarrass his family by using his name on mm. on the first book. Yeah. So. Um, after that, the next three books came really quickly after each other. Um, the biographer I was reading says, <clears throat> like Down and Out, they were all based on Orwell's own experiences and, quote, they were all angry. <laughs> so the biographer <laughs> I was reading says uh, Orwell in the early years was super pissed off about everything. Uh, and also his writing was like a little bit uncomfortable with itself and the subject. Mm. So it lacked some of the voice that he got later on. Um, and it was more misanthropic and hating everything than political. So he focuses only on what's wrong with the world and what's wrong with England and society and poverty and racism and capitalism and all that. Uh, but he doesn't like offer a solution or show what he wants instead. He's, so he's just the guy. He's, he's just the devil's advocate is all he's doing. He's just mad about everything. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. So, so that's how he characterized his early works. Uh, 1934 Burmese days, the one based on his time in uh, Burma, comes out. Uh, a Clergyman's Daughter was published in 1935, and Orwell said he only wrote that for the money. Right. Um, and I, did you read anything else about A Clergyman's Daughter? Like, I read some of the plot. It sounded like it was kind of like a, a difficult... Like, it was an example of good writing. Yeah. So it's interesting that Orwell hated it so much, or claimed to hate it. Yeah, I don't know anything about it, to be <clears throat> honest. Uh, I know he wrote it, and I heard the same thing of he wrote it for a paycheck. Yeah. But a lot of a lot of writers do that, especially in those days. I mean, Ernest Hemingway, he did the exact same thing, where he would write stuff where he's like, "I just did it for the paycheck because I need I needed the money." I feel like they were getting more money for books back then because I don't think anyone nowadays writes fiction for no. a paycheck. No, absolutely <laughs> not. Our, the it, it's a completely different 
time period, a different way of publishing stories. Um, and around the time a clergyman's daughter came out, he met his future wife, Eileen, at a party. I don't know anything else Come about on, this. Come on, Eileen. Oh, <laughs> I swear that you mean at this moment. Yes, I can just picture Orwell singing that at the top of his lungs while doing a little jig. That's what that song is about. <laughs> Did you read anything else Prove about- Prove me wrong. Prove me wrong that Come On Eileen is not about George Orwell's wife. I mean, I guess I can't prove you exactly. wrong. I hope it's not. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's the truth. And uh, all of the evidence con- to, contrary to it has been abolished, and you're not allowed to talk about it. So you're rewriting history. I'm rewriting. He who controls the present controls the past. Ooh. Come on, Eileen! Oh, I swear that you mean at this moment, you mean everything. <laughs> it's about it's about his wife. Okay. Do you, you know, know when that song came out? 1940 something. Eight, 1984. <laughs> Did it really? I have no idea. I'm oh, making okay. up so much Tyler shit right now. Tyler is straight up lying, so nobody <laughs> listened to him. <laughs> I'm going to look that up right now. Hold on. You can keep talking. No, I want you to tell me if you know anything else about uh, their relationship. Okay, so uh, the only thing that I can remember from the uh, small amount um, was that she, I mean, she supported him in a lot of stuff that he was doing. Like, she moved around with him. Um and uh, anytime he was like, I mean, he was going off to war again. We're I keep alluding to it. We're about to jump into it. And like she was fine with it. She just kind of was like, yeah, this is what he's got to do. So it's interesting to me. And then later on, spoiler alert, he's going to cheat on her like a lot. Oh, I'm glad you know about that because spoiler alert, my dude didn't tell me anything about his sex life. And then and I didn't then, even know Eileen existed until they got married. And then um, and then I know that she dies pretty young. So that's pretty much all that I know about Eileen. Perfect. Uh, that song came out in 1982. Damn it. I was so close. <laughs> How freaked out would you have been if it was 1984, though? I would have just ended the episode now. <laughs> like, um, so then he wrote a couple other things, including The Road to Wigan Pier, uh, which came out in 1937. That one was interesting because he specifically wrote it for the Left Book Club. Uh, he was like friends or something with the editor. Um, and that was a publishing group active from 1936 to 1948 that specifically aimed to put out books, uh, to educate and inspire the British left wing. So it was like completely a political publishing group. Mm. So, uh, for the road to Wigan Pier, Orwell spent time living with families in England's industrial north. So he like went into the mines with the workers and did other stuff like that to, to do research for the book. The first half of the book this is another thing about Orwell's writing. Like, the first half is always one thing, and then the second half is a totally different thing. Sure. So the first half of, of this book details the sociological investigations he kind of did into the living conditions of the working poor. And the second half is an essay kind of reflecting on his own life and thoughts and questions he had about British ideas around socialism. So the editor wanted to completely cut out the second half. But Orwell refused. The editor gave in, but uh, added like his own introduction, disowning Orwell's criticisms of middle class socialists who Orwell said didn't understand working class life. So his socialist book was not socialist enough for the left wing publishing group, (laughs) (laughs) which is kind of like typical of Orwell. He can't just like get along with any ideology. Not at all. 
he always, he's a hipster. He has to be in it enough to understand how to not be a part of it. He's yeah. always the outsider. He's like, I'm a socialist, but you, <laughs> like, middle-class socialists don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Love him. Okay, so now we're getting to war. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know if y'all know what was happening in the uh, mid to late 1930s in the world. Uh, just a little bit of... Uh, complete turmoil yeah mostly in in (laughs) europe and and russia and whatnot um so in december of 1936 orwell went to spain and joined a militia that was fighting against franco in the spanish civil war so uh he really put himself out there for his ideals um and at this point he wasn't quite a communist but i think he considered himself more of a revolutionary socialist and uh, got his Independent Labor Party card, basically. So uh, that that was where he was going in there. Did you? How much into the war did you get into, Tyler? Uh, that's uh, I listened to. Basically, he he got shot up a couple times. That he uh, he like led a couple of charges and then got fucked up again and then he went back out and like the dude was had a had he straight up had a death wish he was all about that that military life and it made me chuckle just in comparison to Ernest Hemingway (laughs) because Ernest Hemingway is this huge hero in his own mind he got one wound and he's like out and he's just walking around town in his military uniform telling everybody about his sacrifice to the country <laughs> and all kinds of shit. And then you got a guy like like Eric Blair who's like, oh, I got shot? All right, well, I guess I need to go back out because I still have more to do. And that was surprising to me because Hemingway seems so much tougher and, like, manlier. Yeah. Just, like, yeah. you look at George Orwell and you're like, this dude is going to go out and uh, try to kill people? Yeah. Okay. It was super weird. Uh, I was I was taken aback, but I was also highly impressed. I mean, I, again, this is a this is a guy who stands for what he believes in, and uh, and he doesn't shirk at responsibility for leading people. But I think the problem is he doesn't really know what he believes in. I can agree with that. Um, but I think we're we're talking about a time where there is a lot of inconsistencies with. Political parties. Uh, political parties and belief systems because a lot of people nowadays it's really easy for us to be like oh you know uh germany fascist and communist and totalitarian and it's like no <laughs> even now 50 almost 100 years later it's really easy to get those things mixed up and back then you've got one ideology coming from marxism and then it spreads to all this other stuff. And then you've got mixes of things and then new ideas that are close to that. And you've got socialism and you've got um, capitalism. And those two are the big things that are fighting each other. But sometimes they align with each other in certain ways. And it's like, yeah, of course he didn't know what the fuck he believed in because nobody knew what the fuck they were talking about. Like half of the of the problem is that there's all these um, – these information info wars <laughs> um, oh, about no. like what is what is what and there I don't know it's it sucks because I can't follow it and I think that's why I get so disinterested in like a lot of the uh, George Orwell story because I'm like wait I thought he was socialist but he's fighting socialists uh, wait he's a he's democratic but he 
but he hates these people. I don't understand that. And I, my head spins around so fast when it comes to that stuff. And I think his did too. By the end of the war, he was pretty uh, disillusioned. Yeah. Um, so backing up, just his main, his like worst injury that I saw was when he got shot through the neck. Yeah. So uh, he was pretty lucky to survive. It just missed his carotid artery. By millimeters. Yeah. And it took him like several days to get to a real hospital. Yeah. They were just kind of like shuffling him around out on the battlefield to different little hospital tents or whatever. Sure. Sure. Um, So yeah, I I think at one point like a doctor said he wouldn't be able to talk again, Mm -hmm. which fortunately was not true. Um, But yeah, so that was his like last- (laughs) That damn central air conditioning- (laughs) <laughs> yeah, he should have eschewed uh, modern medicine and been like, nah, don't fix it, bruh. Yeah. I'm fine. Um, so by June of 1937, the pol- political situation was even worse in Spain. And the militia that Orwell was in was outlawed by the government and the communists turned against them, calling them <laughs> fascist. Right, so right. he was having a rough time. This is where I, I really, I think I, I really stopped engaging in the book because there was so much of this. Like, so much political turmoil. Yeah. And I'm like, I don't understand it. I don't care anymore. Well, it's really hard because there's like a dozen different militias and yeah. all of that. So government officials raided Eileen's hotel room in Spain and Orwell was just kind of like sleeping on the streets or whatever. He didn't want to go back because they were convinced that once he went back. They would both get arrested. Mm. They weren't wrong. The couple escaped <laughs> Spain. Weren't wrong. <laughs> they posed as tourists to get out of the country. And three weeks later, an indictment was published against them for high treason and espionage. Jeez. So, yeah, it was good they got out of there when they did. Um, and then just kind of wrapping up his thoughts on the situation in Spain, he had um, one thing that he wrote that I thought was kind of Kind of telling, he said, one of the dreariest effects of this war has been to teach me that the left-wing press is every bit as spurious and dishonest as that of the right. So, yeah, this is where Orwell realizes that everyone sucks. (laughs) (laughs) It only took him 35 years. Yes. Welcome to my life, sir. Maybe we've just become a cynical generation where we understand that by the age of 18. But, (laughs) yeah. Uh, we know, dude. Yeah. He actually got some life experience to teach him that, whereas, like, right now we're born cynical. Maybe we're standing on the shoulders of giants when we're as cynical as he was because we read his cynicism in his books. Yes. So so after Spain, he goes back to England. Uh, he wrote homage to Catalonia, so sort of based on his uh, Spanish experience. I have not read that book, full disclosure. Um and then why would you you can just read Ernest Hemingway's version of it yeah right (laughs) (laughs) it's way more truthful way shorter probably um so pretty much as soon as he got back to England he had other health problems that were troubling him this is where his health problems really started they really like not started but like started to take a hold of his life because he officially got diagnosed with uh tuberculosis in 1938 and he spent several months um in the hospital trying to recover But there wasn't really, like, an effective treatment at this time for TB, so he would continue to battle it for the rest of his life. Yeah, it even kept him from getting into World War II. Yeah, lucky him. (laughs) Not Uh, if you ask him. (laughs) Not if you ask him. He was pissed, man. He was like, I'm I'm here to fight, bruh. Fight the Nazis. (laughs) Um, So, Homage was actually published while he was still in the hospital. It was not a success commercially at all. Hmm. Didn't sell well at all. Um, but 
critics really respect it now in hindsight as his like stylistic breakthrough. So this is where he kind of matured from yeah. hating everything. At this point, does he have his his rules of writing? You know, I don't know when those came out. I Were included you touch them on at this? the end. Okay. Because uh, I like them as yeah. rules of writing. Yeah. I'm not sure when he wrote them. It's huge. I mean, I I I learned those. I think randomly through something like reading uh Stephen King on writing oh really um I think that's where he gets a lot of it but then even looking at Ernest Hemingway who had kind of the same rules they're good rules they are very good rules we're not going to tell you what they are yet not yet (laughs) we'll wait and so I I just didn't know because this is where his style really takes place is this where well if he didn't like specifically write them out then I'm sure he was kind of realizing yeah that 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 those were this, good these are ideas in his head at the very least and he's trying to he's trying to put them on paper of in his writing yes yeah i get that um so in 1941 he took a job with the bbc as a producer trying to make some money <laughs> trying to scrape by um but because he loves the radio yeah oh wait right. i don't love the radio I don't love the radio see that seems like a weird choice for someone who hates the radio right um, but World War II was in progress then, and uh, did you want to talk about how he couldn't get into into the war? I mean, he just, I mean just he, because he couldn't of his because, health problems. Yeah, because of his health. That's it. Yeah. Um, and with the war in progress, he really did not like his job there because he felt that he was being used as a propagandist for yeah. the British government. Um, so he he resigned and then took a much more appropriate who is, job. Who does that remind you of? Oh, uh, maybe one of the, the characters in his novel nope nope oh. nope nope he 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 didn't like the oh, idea of lewis. writing there <laughs> yeah. you go c.s lewis also writing for the bbc wasn't he he, he wrote, was writing I mean, letters he, for he would write his little his little speeches and sermons yeah. and things and then he would go on bbc radio george orwell and uh c.s lewis would have been great friends but probably not actually no honestly well this is like a much nicer dude it seems like i don't know i mean you, you never know how people are going to click and and connect but I could see them having good, really good conversations as long as as they're both willing to sit there and listen <laughs> to each other. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh. Missed connections. Seriously. Um, so he resigned from BBC and took a job as a literary editor for a socialist newspaper, which, I mean, it was a much better fit for him. Sure. Um, and then around the same time, uh, he and Eileen their health kept deteriorating. Yep. Uh, but they decided to adopt a kid anyway because because uh, Orwell was sterile. He could not. Oh, was he? Children. Yeah. Yeah. Well. And for once, it's blamed on the guy, not on the girl. <laughs> Perfect. I think he was. He'd be willing to accept that. You know, like he he doesn't seem he doesn't seem like the macho-y type of like it's your fault. Like I think he's the type of guy that. Needs to get to the truth of things, so he's more willing to accept, like, oh, no, it's definitely me. It's probably me, not you, Eileen. Come on, Eileen. (laughs) So they adopt Richard. Uh, And then the next year, he starts writing Animal Farm, which is one of the top two Orwell books ever. Did you read that in The top two? Come on. Come on. (laughs) They only got the two. Nobody cares about the rest. Nobody cares about the rest. (laughs) They're both like tied for my favorite Orwells. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Did you read Animal Farm in school? Yeah. Did you like it at the time? Um, as much as a kid could like it in (laughs) in high school. I feel so I like reviewed the the plot basically for this because it had been probably a decade since I read it. 
I need to reread it because I think I would appreciate it a lot more now yeah. that I like understand politics and stuff. Yeah. I remember reading it then and I'm just like, what the hell is going on with these pigs? Yeah. I mean, it's it's essentially he he ha- it's the whole veiled critique thing, right? Which the second you say, oh, the veiled critique, blah, 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 you sound super pretentious. But, but- I think he did it with animals to not be pretentious. Like his whole right. thing was he wanted to write a political satire that yeah. anyone could understand. Yep. Um, he, yeah, he wanted to he wanted to tell a fable and that's exactly what he did. He used animals just like every other fable does. Um, and it's super interesting. I was just watching a video um, where um, where these guys break down. Usually they do like stunts or visual effects. And if you know what I'm talking about, you'll know what I'm talking about. But there's no reason to give <laughs> super shout outs. They did an episode on animation and in one of the one of the animations is this old like one of the the first like animated um, cartoons and it's got a Mickey Mouse type character and they brought up the fact that all these characters have um, have gloves you know like they're like Mickey Mouse you know like oh, black yeah. Mickey Mouse with with white glove and <clears throat> a lot of people think that that uh, has to do with like it's it's basically doing blackface. But then, like, the whole point of the cartoon, this cartoon for kids, was to show, like, uh, the oppression of KKK and, like, define their uh, their ways of inviting people in and, and showing the hellscape that black people have to deal with through lynching and, and uh, systematic racism in America. Like, through a cartoon. But it's around the same time. Like Disney was doing the same stuff around the same time mm-hmm. with with Mickey Mouse, uh, uh, Beatrice Potter. Oh yeah, yeah. She's writing stories with um, the the rabbit thing, like, and those have some veiled stuff into it. So I think he saw that as a, a way to be like, oh, I want to do this exact same thing. Well, yeah, even like way back in ancient times. I mean, Aesop's fables are like the the OG fables. So, sure. uh, yeah, he kind of just adopted that style into political satire um and and while he he was inspired by specifically the russian revolution for animal farm like it holds up for pretty much any sort of revolution or like corrupt politics because it's really focused on like the human side of of all of this or rather the natural side of how things will go and i think that's why it works so well i think it's the metaphors there like this is how nature works you cannot have a revolution without corruption yes someone is always gonna like steal all the resources it's a part of our genetic code as animals on earth there will always be those that oppress other people all animals are equal but some animals are are more more equal equal. Yeah. yeah so he couldn't get this published originally because Russia was an ally in the war. So several major publishers turned him down. Yeah. So it came out pretty much right after World War II ended in 1945. And Eileen had actually died of heart failure before it came out. And you know about him cheating on her. That was news to me. I mean, there's there's stuff the dude just mentioned it. And and this is right at the end of where I started listening. In fact, the only reason why I just listened a little more was because he brought up the fact <laughs> that he that Orwell was having affairs with women. See, biographers, this is why you need sex in your biography. Sex sells, bro. And um and so like I was straight up ready to turn it off, but then he's like, you know, 
and one of his lovers talked to him about this. And I was like, I'm sorry. What? <laughs> Let's keep listening. And he's like, yes, this is one of many lovers that he had a, an affair with. And I'm like, damn. All right. So Orwell's getting it, too, man. Like, I thought he was a principled guy. I thought he was very moralistic. And like, but no, he's just another dog just trying to get what he wants. <laughs> yeah. I mean, still my uh, political spirit animal, but <laughs> I yeah, I bad just, dude. <laughs> don't cheat. I don't know. I don't know what to say. I mean, it's it's interesting to me. The more we uncover, and we've our show has really been, we've been touching a lot of like early to mid twentieth uh, century authors. You know, Lewis Lovecraft, Hemingway, uh, Orwell, um, and they like most. Lewis was the only one that wasn't a douchebag in my head, like Mr. James, and and it's just interesting to me that the majority of these guys I don't respect because they are dicks. I mean, is this like an intellectual thing, a writer thing, like, or are all dudes just cheaters? I don't know. I I, I... answer for all men, Tyler. Yeah. Uh, as a white man, I speak for all of us when I say, uh, no, nah, I don't know. It, it bothers me because because um, it scares me, to be completely honest. It really does. It scares me because <clears throat> what does that say about me? You know, like I, I want I don't want to cheat on my wife. I don't want to cheat on my bold wife. statement on this right? podcast that yeah. your wife can listen to. Yeah, uh, she knows this. And like, but like what? Am I going to be a Lewis and not cheat on my wife? Of course, he had his own things going on, right? Like, <laughs> possibly a sexual relationship with his best friend's mom. That's neither here nor there. <laughs> At least he didn't cheat on her. A small spanking <laughs> fetish. Um, and didn't didn't love his wife until uh, after they got married. <laughs> like, he's... Yeah, not he's, the best uh, role model. Right, actually. like... If that's the if that's the opposite of cheating, like I I don't know. It's just super weird to me that that men can't have a normal sexual appetite, a normal relationship with women, um, and be good authors and be good thinkers and philosophers and and all this and and you know I I'm starting to get a little discouraged by it. Um, of course, we're picking people that are fantastic <laughs> in general, but we're not picking them because of their sexual adventures. We're picking them because of their books. Yeah. So it's not like it's somebody who's listening to this might be like, well, you're just getting the, the cream of the crop as far as dickheads. And it's like, <laughs> but we're not picking them because they're dicks. We learned that later. Yeah. I had full hopes that George Orwell was going to be a good guy. And loved his wife, and when when they first started, like he met his wife, and then he proposed, and then she's like, nah. And then later they got married to get, like they got married, and like I was like, oh, this is gonna be a good relationship because she supports him in his writing, she supports him in his war efforts, everything. Like she's a good wife, and I thought, oh, he's gonna be great. And then out of nowhere, oh, and also his lovers. <laughs> and I'm like, fuck, dude. Somebody send help for Tyler and for me. Um, and refer us to a dude writer who did not cheat on his wife. Very please. specifically, though, here's the here's the conditions: they have to be prolific. They have to be a good writer from the twenty early to mid century twentieth century, early to mid twentieth century. <laughs> this Thank is you. like a lower upper middle class yeah. thing. And and uh, and yeah, and they have to have not cheated on their wife. 
That's all. Just give me some hope, guys. Seriously. Is it because there wasn't porn back then? Like, is it I'm because, sure there like, was porn back then. But not as readily available. There's always been porn. But, like, so, like, people were more extreme. It's like you either just you're, you're with your wife or you're with a prostitute. Like, nowadays, guys are like, oh, I'm with my wife. But sometimes I just go turn on that computer and <laughs> that's it. Of course, then you could get into the argument. This is a huge tangent. <laughs> then you get into the argument that they're cheating on their wife with porn because they're giving co- emotional commitment to that and the computer. And then you start to get into the ideals of 1984 and the fact that brain being brainwashed by technology and being forced to believe in a certain ideal by expectations of our culture and society. And if you, if you go against those, then you will be brainwashed to think that way because you're not allowed to think a different way that's a great segue to his final book slash the most famous one yeah i think most famous animal farm's really famous it is very famous. oh also at the time it came out animal farm was a smash hit uh it yeah. got him like international fame and recognition the only reason why they don't do 1984 in in high schools as readily as they do um uh animal farms just because of all the sex well and it's i think harder to get through I forgot that there was a lot of sex in 1984. There's so much sex. <laughs> I have not read that for a long time either, so I had to do the the plot refresher. Um, so, obviously, heavily inspired by the dual threats of Nazism and Stalinism. Mm-hmm. Uh, very, very bleak um, yeah. outlook. Uh, and, and Tyler, so you said something on our Instagram that was interesting to me about this, yeah. which was that it's a love story. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me more. Uh, I mean, how is it not a love story? Dude's, I, dude's all alone, whacking it off in front of his TV, and he's getting sexually pent up uh, to the point of wanting to rape and kill women. And then one person says that they love him, and he becomes a better person. It's totally great. His life gets better. Until it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> So, I mean, for those who haven't read it, in the universe of 1984, you're not allowed to have, like, relationship relations. You're not allowed to, like, be you in love. You cannot have sex uh, with someone you love. You cannot be in love. The only time you're allowed to have sex is to re- reproduce. Mm-hmm. That's it. And you're assigned a wife um, after, like, if you come to terms with someone that you don't love. If they think you love them at all, you're not allowed to get married. Um, because you have the only thing you can be loyal to is the government, the government, the the, company, the big yeah. brother that's always watching you. Um, so yeah, and so in in he had a wife for a long time, uh, and he talks about like oh every time we'd have sex she just she both embraced me and it felt like she was pushing me away with all of her might because she didn't like having sex with me she hated it but she was so brainwashed that she had to do it. Uh, so that doesn't feel great, which I totally <laughs> agree with. Um, and uh, and then and then a, a, his wife disappears. I can't exactly remember why, but she, the government took her for some reason. Um, so then he's all alone for like seven, nine years, something like that. And and he seriously is just like he's just dying. Like he's super slim. He doesn't have the will to live anymore. Um, and he is super paranoid in his own head. And then this girl, um, uh, Julia, she, uh, slips him a a note and it just says, I love you. And from that moment on, his life gets better. 
and they start a romantic relationship, a sexual relationship by sneaking around and, and doing it where they can. And, um, and he becomes a better person. He's more healthy. He's happier. Um, and he's has he has someone that he can have this relationship with. That it's not just sex. Like it is sex, a lot of it, but also they like argue and talk about the the way things are going in the government. And like you know, he he sees how the government changes facts to fit their regime, and he hates it. And then she hates them because they they keep people from loving each other and, and being together. And when he says like, you know, can you believe that they would change these facts? She's like, I don't fucking care about that. That doesn't matter. What matters is that they won't let us do what we want to do. Uh, it, it doesn't matter who was alive at what time or who invented the airplane. If they want to claim the airplane, that's fine. As long as they let us fuck, you know, like that's her view on it. Um, and he is, by the way, he's like, one of a hundred people that she's done this with like so he's not super special uh but i think that that it does develop into something more special and then uh and then yeah then they get caught because he trusted the wrong person uh you shouldn't do that and then um and they get caught and they get tortured it's basically all it is they get tortured and brainwashed and tortured and brainwashed and finally he um they get him to the point where uh, they use his phobia of rats against him, and he uh, basically betrays Julia in 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 a philosophical way of like make her go through this. You know, I don't yeah. I don't want to have to do it, so make her go through it. They put his head in a cage basically and threaten to let rats, rats eat their way through off. his face, and yeah. he says, "Do it to Julia instead." Yeah, so that so they prove that they can break him of his. Un, unending love for her which really i don't think it was love it was lust so really they didn't prove that much because there's not that much of a bond between them so <laughs> well, obviously he said do it to julia yeah instead. like you know i i can say this and i get that it sounds kind of lame because uh i'm not living through it or anything and, <laughs> and i have a pretty cush life but uh if somebody were to straight up try and, and torture me to get me to uh, uh, betray my wife, uh, who I've been with for 15 fucking years, um, I'd tell them to go fuck off <laughs> until I died. And I would, I would, I'm willing to be tortured for my wife because I love her so much, right? And um, the more that they torture me, the more it proves my love. You know, that one simple act or that one simple thought will get me through anything. So, there's a difference between the lust that he had for Julia <laughs> and real love that people have for each other when they're committed to each other is my one little thing. And uh, obviously Julia's love wasn't that strong either because he, once he gets let out, he sees her they both yeah they both see each other which means that she did the same thing to him basically yeah they both see each other and they realize that they're not in love with each other and that they both just love big brother and uh and that's the end of the story yeah isn't that like the last line like yeah i love he loved big brother so i mean it's my perfect love story because it's so cynical (laughs) (laughs) it's just like Yep, these people fell madly in love, and then they didn't because humans are fickle and weak, and pain and fear rules everything. <laughs> and while he wrote this, he married somebody. <laughs> yes, yeah, so, so he yeah. re- remarried. Not sure I would marry someone who was writing this, but yeah, 
Um, but I mean, it's also like the perfect indictment of government and humanity's relationship to it. And I want to let you go off now. I want to hear because I sermonized so much in the last <laughs> episode about God and theology and and hell and shit like that. So. It's your turn. This is your world. You are a, a news reporter person. You uh, you care so much more about this shit than <laughs> I do. Um, so let's let's let Hannah go off. Okay. So I think the reason that I love Orwell's writing is because he's so cynical. He like he went through all his different like political ideologies, and then I think at the end he realized that it's all fucked up. Government is always going to try to be its most oppressive form and humanity is just going to fall back into that trap over and over again. You sure. see it in Animal Farm uh, where like they start out with this utopian animal society where all the animals are equal and then slowly, you know, the quote unquote smarter animals start to take over. They become corrupt. They brainwash other animals to do their bidding. They force out the ones who uh, are a threat to them and, and then it things don't go well like the farm doesn't produce enough food everybody's living in terrible conditions but they keep the propaganda going too so that they think things are great even though they're terrible so they ensure the loyalty that way and then it just all goes to hell and you know all animals are created equal but some are more equal and then you see it in 1984 too with the total domination of of what humans can see what they can do what they can think even uh, the rewriting of history in that one is a big one. And again, with the propaganda and then also the way he uh, kind of envisioned the surveillance society was really interesting for this being in the 1940s. Yeah. Like he's literally got TV screens watching people. So yeah. that aged Facebook really well. Facebook portal anybody? <laughs> right. Skype? Zoom anybody? Was George Orwell psychic? Mm. Mm? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. So, I mean, his... I think that's also why his his work ages so well is because he doesn't use the specific events. Like, he didn't literally write about Nazism or Stalinism. Right. He wrote something that is just as applicable now as it was 60 years ago. Yeah. So, George Orwell is the MVP of political uh, satire and just political novels in general. How do you feel about the idea of, like, George or you, you, we get the term Orwellian, right? Um, and a lot of people use that as uh, like totalitarianism, um, or like it's an indictment of totalitarianism, right? Like, like oh, it's so Orwellian, and uh, it's got its connotations. But um, about the idea that it's more simple than that, it's more refined than that. In that, it has almost nothing to do with the fascism or communism that can lead to certain or even democracies that can lead to um, an outlook on life but rather Orwellian um, would mean the over consumption of technology to where it controls our life I mean I, I read this book listening to it with that in mind because I had already read it a long time ago um, I think I did read it in high school because I was like, oh, Animal Farm, this is crazy. And then I, 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 or we watched it or something. And so you get that first hit in the face of like government, big brother. And, you know, you're slapped with all that. But if you really dig deep, the problem isn't that there's big brother. The problem isn't that there's uh, government. 
it's that people have lent themselves to technology and um, the the manipulation of language. Mm-hmm. That's what Orwellian really represents is the the manipulation of of understanding. Yeah, that makes sense. And I mean, I think I think the uh, distraction of technology played a big role in 1984. Like, I think there was also some mention about how like the government used like porn and stuff to keep them distracted. Yeah, uh, I mean, just, Julia, she yeah, she worked in like something that man- she started out as a 16 year old in porn. And then worked her way out of uh, being in the films and into the production of it. Yeah. So I, I think he also had very cynical views of just like human ability to think big. Sure. Uh, yeah. And, and I think putting the timestamp of 1984 on it would turn a lot of people off. He within even the the structure of the narrative he talks about, like. Oh, it might not even be 1984. Yeah. That's just what who, we're told. Who would know? Yeah, we have no idea what date it really is because we just believe what we're told. And what we're told is it's 1984. Like, that's it. Like, and that right there is the scary part. Like, could you imagine not knowing what the date actually is? Yeah. Could you imagine you're so given over to a group of people that run your life that you have to believe in, in the date that they tell you it is? I ask people all the time, what's the date? And then the second they tell me, I still pull out my phone and check. <laughs> yeah, you because don't really I, don't trust be- I don't believe I don't believe them. You could be wrong. And But then you're trusting the phone, which is run by somebody. Oh, oh. shit. What is even what numbers? Day is Am I it? right? That's a time is a concept yeah. that we've created as humans. Ah! <laughs> Come on, Eileen! <laughs> Just the theme for the episode here. That's going to be the name of the episode. But yeah. Uh, The one other thing I wanted to say is like people use Orwell to like justify pretty much any political standpoint. They have like the everybody who reads Orwell will be like, oh, my political enemy, you're basically big brother, blah, blah, blah. And it goes either side. But I think if Orwell were still alive, he would want you to look at yourself and your own political group. And be like, oh, maybe they have some of these tendencies, too. Because yeah. everybody's a fascist. The fascists are fascists. The communists are fascists. Mm-hmm. Every, everything is totalitarian. Yeah. Nobody is good. The end. Boom. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> I think, and it's it's interesting. You know, it, it, becomes, it becomes a good way of... Um, of self-rectifying things that stand out um and right now we're so divisive it's it's hard because we either stand completely with a stance or we're standing completely against it there's no loyalty while scrutiny exists um and and i think that's sad because that's where i live you know i live in that place every single day of of trying to scrutinize everything while being loyal to something and um <clears throat> and being able to understand that uh and i you know it's it's scary i don't think that we'll ever get to that place i think that this is a horror story you know <laughs> it's the same as a boogeyman it's the same as the babadook sort of thing where this is a representation of of the worst that it could be but it couldn't ever get this bad especially now i don't think it could ever get this bad um but that being said, there are things that are happening right now. Right now. Sorry, that's a 
John Goblicon thing. Um, that it that we need to look for and be aware of. I was not aware. <laughs> the most terrifying thing I I have found out from researching th- this guy is what happened when they're like on Fox News or something where they reported something and everyone's like that's not what happened and they're like well those are just alternative facts <laughs> and then they say that it like rings in your mind of like oh, I'm sorry did you just did you just say alternative facts this is not a music genre there are yeah. there is no alternative post facts modernism is not a thing all right it was just terrifying like that's something you type in George Orwell and you can you can dive bomb into what's going on right now and you'll get all kinds of stuff so it's it's sad it's sad I this made me sad Aww. Nothing about this episode made me happy. Well, uh, except Orwell's for this, writing rules. except for this delicious garage <laughs> copy. <laughs> that made me happy Oregon. too. So, uh, Orwell died. Spoiler alert! Uh, at like forty-seven. Yeah. Uh, six months after nineteen eighty-four was published. Yeah. So that's kind of depressing. Mm-hmm. But you know, he had the TB. <laughs> he did have the tuberculosis. He had the tuberculosis. Uh, but. I want to end by talking about his writing rules because they're fabulous it. rules that the author of this biography did not give a fuck about. Son of a bitch. Uh, so he has six of them. Number one, never use a metaphor, simile, or other figure of speech which you are used to seeing in print. So this one I take is just, uh, like, don't be cliched. Yeah, that's what I would take it as. Yeah. Like, here's here's my example, all right? And, and this is kind of the same, but it's a little, a little bit different. I, I'm writing a fantasy book, right? You've started reading it. You're critiquing it, telling me what you think. Um, originally, I had humans, dwarves, elves, and orcs, right? And uh, and I wrote this whole story. And then after I finished it, I was like, hey, you know what this is? Um, it's Lord of the fucking Rings <laughs> is what it is. You're not the first author to do that. Yeah. Uh, and so I was pissed off. So I rewrote the whole thing to change the orcs, the dwarves, and the elves, um, and and do them completely different, just in my own way, just so that their own their their own thing. They still represent a lot of the same things, but they're different, right? And uh, and so like I just I can't stand the idea of like like I've said it a couple times, standing on other people's shoulders to tell my story. Mm-hmm. I'll tell my own damn story. So that was that was a small thing. Orwellian rule number two. Never use a long word where a short one will do. So this is- it exacerbates the situation. Oh my god! You broke the rule. <laughs> See yourself out. I mean, this is because Orwell was writing for everyone. He, like, yeah. even though he wasn't intellectual, he wasn't trying to be a pretentious douchebag. He wanted everyone to be able to read his books. Yeah. So, don't use if I mean thesource.com is great. But don't pick a word just because it's super freaking long. I will say this. You should practice it, though. Like, like you should practice with big words uh, because then once you understand them more, you can understand how powerful smaller words are. Um, I use big words every once in a while. I'll throw something big in because I'm trying to elaborate a very specific feeling for a sentence or paragraph or point. Um, and I used to get on Facebook and take one, one specific idea of like, of like, I, I like this. And if you don't like me because I like this, then, um, 
you're a hypocrite or something like that. It was a very simple sentence. And then I would just thesaurus the shit out of it. And I would turn it into a long-winded, huge ordeal of, of reading. And I did that just to play with words. Um, so I, I think that people, the more you play with words, the more you'll see how simple words can help. And those long-winded sentences lead into the next tip. If it is possible to cut a word out, always cut it out. Yeah. Tyler, you need to cut the words out. Do you think I cut words? Or do you think I have too many words? I feel like I tell you to cut words out a lot. It, oh, in my writing? Yeah. Okay. I didn't know if you meant on the show. No, 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 no. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. I And that's a that's residue from when I first started writing. I mean, this book that I've been writing, I've been writing for like seven, eight years now. And it's one of the first books I actually really started writing. So you get that amateur feel of like i'm gonna write as many words in this sentence as possible <laughs> and you don't need to do that just write the damn thing and move on yep and number four never use the passive where you can use the active i mean any english teacher that's will tell you that. so basic and yet it's so complicated like it's so hard for people to understand yeah Be- because it yeah it is because it's not part of of human chatting it's not about it we talk in the passive so much because passive speech is humble it's easier for other people to uh accept right so when we're writing we have to get around that um if uh, basically everything that i've said to you has been passive because i don't want to piss you off hannah go for the next one next one five (laughs) that was my active that was your active good job Never use a foreign phrase, a scientific word, or a jargon word if you can think of an everyday English equivalent. I mean, that kind of goes back to to rule uh, number two. Sure. But more specific. It's like, it is more don't specific. say shit that people can't understand yeah. just to prove that you're smart. Yeah, exactly. I think that um, uh, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse did this perfectly. Do you Have you watched that? <laughs> It's the best Spider-Man movie ever made. It's animated. The animated one? Yeah. Okay. Uh, it's the greatest Spider-Man movie ever made. Fight me if you don't believe me. Um, and they do it perfectly where he's he's like, oh, I've got this USB with the override drive, blah, blah, blah. And then the older Spider-Man's like, oh, you got a gobbledygook. And he's <laughs> like, a what? He's like, it's a gobbledygook. There's always a this thing or this thing or this thing. I just started calling it a gobbledygook because they're always the same thing. Like, it's so perfect. They get to make fun of that process so much. That's beautiful. Yeah. And then the final rule, rule number six, break any of these rules sooner than say anything outright barbarous. So cruel. Don't break these rules before you're a dick, basically. Yeah, I don't get that one. I don't. Are you going to be a dick? By not using a cliche? Yeah. Are you? Orwell, explain yourself. Come on, Orwell. Just, God damn it. Use more words and explain. <laughs> <laughs> yes, break your own rules. But I guess that one just me- means there are exceptions to every rule. Sure. Don't be afraid to break it. Yeah, I think so. I think yeah. that's pretty much what it means. And I think... Uh, and that's something the teachers tell you all the time, too. Yeah, learn like, the rules, break le- the rules. Yeah, yep. Which is a cliche. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but we're not writing that. We're, we're not writing that. We're using that to write. So, yeah, uh, we've gone on a long time now. I we, I feel like we you, broke our rules. This is not the longest episode yet, but it's not. It's it's a good and it's mostly because I shut the fuck up at the beginning. 
how does it feel to only uh, do like 40% of it the time? It was talking? killing me. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> I had I wanted to make so many jokes. Well, next time, Tyler's going to talk like 90% of the time. Oh, are we getting into it? Are we getting into it? I mean, we're just so excited for the next. I'm very excited for the next episode, actually. Are you? Yes. I'm glad. It's the next two episodes. We're 100% doing oh. two episodes. Okay. Um, our next, our next episode, our next topic for the next month will be Dungeons and Dragons slash Gary Gygax. I don't know what that song is. Come on, Eileen. No. Um, We're going to get sued for copyright infringement. <laughs> um, I'm so fucking excited about this. I've wanted this back in May. But things were so crazy back then that I just we couldn't justify it. Um, since then, we've made more podcast friends, um, and a couple of them have been um, are are into the D and D world a little bit. I mean, uh, we've talked to Allie from Best Friends Playbook before. She has her show, Fables of Refuge, and these are people from that show. Um, I sit down with. Um, with David Carmichael, that'll be out in a in a few weeks as a correspondence, and then we sit down with uh, Jarrett from the DM from Fables of Refuge, and he and I and Hannah talk. Both mostly he and I talk about they nerd <laughs> out uh, about uh, fantasy things. Uh, we try to incorporate Hannah a little bit into that, <laughs> but the really exciting part was Hannah gets to make her very first. Um, player, which ever. I was actually stoked about, and so you guys can uh, listen to and watch the video when we release it in a month or so <laughs> uh, of Hannah making her first character, and you get to see me make one too. Um, and I'm really excited for where that's going because uh, it doesn't end with that video. It's probably gonna there's gonna be more to it after that. Um, so, yeah, so if you are interested in Dungeons & Dragons, um, what is it? Where does it come from? Who's the guy that created it? We are going to dive deep into it, and I just I'm, I cannot stress how excited I am. I'm going to learn so much about nerd culture. If you know about it, if you have um, – listen. Okay, look, guys, I'm, I'm, getting, I'm getting for real here. I'm getting <laughs> up on the mic. Look. He's making up for the whole rest of the episode. <laughs> look. I know every episode we say, hey, you should send in stories and like little little things. You should email us, tell us all kinds of stuff. Nobody ever does. <laughs> it's really sad. It makes me really sad because I, I really want to build a community of writers and creative people. And and I'm being super serious. Let's start that with this D&D &D thing. All right. Let's start that. This will be two years that Hannah and I have been releasing episodes. Dungeons and Dragons will be two years. One. Sorry. I'm so sorry. One year. Yeah. <laughs> We've aged. <laughs> so much. It feels like two years because coronavirus has yes, sapped an entire year. The last year. <laughs> six months have been eight years it's long. It's been one full year since we started doing the show. I want to hear from you guys. If you have a Dungeons and Dragons story from like when you played, um, it happened to you, uh, something you ran as a DM or experienced as a player, Write a story for us. Write that experience. 500 to uh, to 700 words. Um, just write it out. Send it in. We will read it on the show. If you have a fantasy story that's inspired by D&D, &D, Lord of the Rings, Narnia, Game of Thrones, anything fantasy themed, 
and you can fit it into 500 to 700 words, write it and send it in. Or just send an excerpt of something. Anything. Yeah. Seriously. I, I want I want us to start building relationships with you guys. If you have never thought about writing before in your life, take this opportunity to do it. Send it in and we will be gentle, I swear. If you have written and you're just kind of afraid to share it, share it with us. If you, even Look, even if you just want us to read it and tell you what we think, we won't even read it on air. I just want to know that you're out there. And if you're an experienced writer and you're just not doing shit as far as helping us get content for our show, <laughs> send it in. <laughs> so, Tyler, where should they send it? Thank you for that segue, Hannah. They can send it to lewisandlovecraft at gmail.com or you can uh, send it to us on Instagram at lewisandlovecraft. Um, you can go to our website and there's a contact page there, lewisandlovecraft.com. Um, or you can go to Facebook if you want to, uh, facebook.com backslash Lewis and Lovecraft. Perfect. Yeah. And uh, as always, we want to thank Jake Basson for our awesome intro music. You can find him at soundcloud.com slash Jake Basson. That's B as in boy, A-S-S-E-N. Also, shout out to Tyler's brother Cameron for our correspondence intro yeah. music, yeah. which is just the funnest it's thing ever. It's super cool. I like it a lot. Yeah. Uh, don't forget to subscribe, everybody, so that you can keep up to date with all the fun things that we're doing. Also, be sure to check out our YouTube page. Um, I'm going to try very hard to start making some videos <laughs> um maybe do a book review or two but i also have an idea for something that i have to run past you after we record Ooh. uh to see if she if hannah's interested in having that on our channel okay uh and also rate and review us wherever you're allowed to rate and review us uh so primarily itunes yeah iTunes also write and, us a and, review on facebook and cool. spotify i think is now kind of becoming a, a big one for for podcasts so if you're on spotify uh leave us a like or something uh yeah and uh, hannah where what's the best way what's the best way the best thing you can do to help us is to tell your nerdy friends about yeah. our podcast yeah seriously um because big brother's watching and if you don't tell other people about it how's the revolution going to unfold exactly if you don't tell other people about our podcast you basically want a totalitarian government yeah so <laughs> chew on that all right and hannah do you have an outro for our for our next episode i don't because i don't nothing? know anything about D D yet that's fine the next time we get together we're gonna roll a critical roll uh, roll what? a roll a, a crit roll natural 20 that makes total <laughs> sense <laughs> Come on, Eileen. Come on, Eileen.